This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. It is Tuesday. We are back doing questions for the neonatology boards. Daphna, how are you? I'm doing great. I like the GI section. <laughs> yeah, so far it's been it's been quite pleasant, I must say. Yeah, even you you were excited about the GI section. I was not really as excited as you were, but that's that's fine. I'm I'm uh, I'm uh, growing into it, settling in. Yeah. Okay. We'll start with question 24. A male infant born at 32 weeks gestation with a congenital diaphragmatic hernia is 56 days old today. Uh, now postmenstrual age of 40 weeks gestation and is being evaluated for cholestasis, which was first noted two weeks ago. The first two weeks of his life were tumultuous because he required a significant amount of respiratory support. Right. That's putting it nicely, probably. <laughs> However, he was successfully repaired four weeks ago uh, for the diaphragmatic hernia. He remained NPO for the first four weeks of life, receiving to uh, TPN, but has been receiving full enteral feedings for the last 10 days. Two weeks ago, he was noted to appear jaundiced on examination, and his laboratory data showed a serum bilirubin of 9.8 with a direct fraction of Five, five out of the 9.8. His state newborn screen included a screen for toxo, including a screen for toxoplasmosis was normal. Uh, a cytomegalovirus urine shell vial is negative. His abdominal ultrasound revealed a collapsed gallbladder. His stool color has been normal, although for the past three days, he has had clay colored stools. His current laboratory tests are as follows. AST 88, ALT 50, a total bilirubin of 7.8 with a direct bilirubin of 5.7. A GGT of 406, which is elevated, and an alpha fetoprotein of 50,000. His uh, PTT and CBC are within normal limits. Of the following, the preferred next step in the evaluation of this infant is to A, obtain a hepatobiliary scintigraphy to access assess for an obstructive biliary condition condition gosh i'm like i'm having <laughs> slurring my words you're, you're so, i only from, had from... coffee before this but i am back-to-back -back nights that's right so, <laughs> for anybody who thinks they function on all cylinders <laughs> multiple nights in a row all right B, obtain a magnetic uh, resonance imaging of the liver to evaluate for neonatal hemochromatosis. C, obtain a liver biopsy to assess for progressive familial intrahepatic biliary hypoplasia. D, send a serum CMV IgG level to assess for a CMV-related hepatitis. Or E, wait and repeat these laboratory tests in a week to determine the trend. It, it's, a very, it's a very hard question. It is. And you got it wrong the first time. Yeah. Uh, it's a very hard question because the, the patient has congenital diaphragmatic hernia. Mm -hmm. And they tell you these things that make you feel like the patient could have TPN-induced cholestasis. Absolutely. The, baby, the baby's NPO for four weeks. And uh, we, we clearly have a direct component to the bilirubin level. You, have, you said you have a bilirubin. I'm going to try to break it down a little bit. So we have yeah. a congenital diaphragmatic hernia, which 
when you hear this, you think, all right, there's there's another congenital anomaly, right? Mm-hmm. I see diaphragmatic hernia as, as a congenital anomaly. Then I see that the baby is NPO for four weeks, which I know CPN cholestasis can start happening when the baby is NPO for two to four weeks. Mm-hmm. So that'd be, that'd be perfectly uh, within, uh, within reason. Um, the bilirubin panel makes sense. You have a total belly of 9.8 and a direct that's pretty much half of it. So we know that if you have 20% or more of your direct components, uh, that's, that's abnormal. Um, then they, they do talk so it's negative. They do a CMV test, which is negative. Mm-hmm. Um, and you do have signs of cholestasis and liver failure with clay-collared stool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then they give you more stuff. So the AST <laughs> and the ALT are, are not impressively elevated. No. Uh, and the GGT is, is high, that's true. The alpha-fetoprotein, is one that you're like, oh, 50,000 sounds like a lot. But I think, if I remember correctly, alpha-fetoprotein has to be like double that. Like I, think, I usually mm-hmm. remember alpha-fetoprotein has to be like 100,000. Yeah, 50,000 um, sounds like a very big number, but yeah. not big enough. And so um, they tell you that his prothrombin time and complete blood count are normal. So then when we go to the choices, um, you have obtained hepatobiliary syntegraphy to uh, assess for an obstructive biliary condition like biliary atresia for example mm-hmm. um so i think it's interesting because we just spoke about this yesterday and we said recognition of these babies early on is critical so i'm going to put a pin in that then you have neonatal hemochromatosis you have to get an mri mm-hmm. but as we said alpha fetoprotein is not that high like That's it's right. it doesn't meet criteria so i would say no um then you have liver biopsy and it's too. not usually diagnosed really on mri no that's true right. um then they say to get a liver biopsy to look for progressive familial intrahepatic biliary um, atresia and maybe hypoplasia. I mean, uh, sorry, hypoplasia. Did I say atresia? I'm so sorry. <laughs> and and we did speak about that um, yesterday. Um, I think if I remember correctly. Then they asked to send a CMV IgG level to assess for CMV related hepatitis. I think that's incorrect. I don't see why having already sent a CMV urine mm-hmm. shell vial is negative. Why would getting G- IgG mix, would make sense? So I'm ruling this one, this one out. And then the answer I originally gave, as you correctly mentioned, which now we can tell is the wrong one, is wait and repeat. So which would probably <laughs> be like if you have TPN cholestasis, you would just let the, the liver, um, you would let the liver recover. So um I think the key here is that um, this is not a preterm baby that's just on TPN. There's other congenital anomalies. And I think, as we said, just waiting in a baby that potentially could have biliary atresia is something that is a big mistake. So choice A probably is the right answer. Yeah, uh, that's correct. And I think E is a, would have been a reasonable answer if the baby wasn't already close to two months old. And we know that you know we want these babies to have surgery early in the first three months, but earlier is better. So I think that's what the urgency is um, about waiting if you even are thinking about biliary atresia. And I think that's the way to approach the test. It's like in Frozen 2, you you just have to do the next best thing, which is like, what is the most urgent thing that we have to do? You might might wait, you might consider waiting, but you want to rule out biliary atresia. Um, So uh, it is critical. The diagnosis of biliary atresia is challenging in preterm infants. This was not a, a preterm infant, I don't think. Um, was it? <laughs> uh, born at 32 <laughs> weeks. 
Yeah. 32 weeks. It was preterm. I forgot so about even that. So even, even when we both did. But I don't think it changes uh, the way you uh, worked up the question. So um, regardless, it's critical to diagnose because the success of surgery is dependent on the timing of the intervention, even if the baby's preterm. So there's a success rate of less than 20% if an infant with biliary atresia has surgery after 90 days of age. And hepatobiliary scintigraphy is a highly sensitive, non-invasive test to diagnose biliary atresia. The problem with the test is that it has a low specificity, resulting in a lot of false positive results. Therefore, patients then often require further confirmation, like liver biopsy or cholangiopancreatography, before undergoing surgery. And so although this infant is at risk for cholestasis caused by prolonged parental nutrition, this new finding of acute acolic stools... Um, an elevated GGT requires an urgent evaluation to exclude biliary atresia because of the time-sensitive nature of the intervention. Therefore, waiting for resolution would also not be appropriate uh, at this time. As you mentioned, neonatal hemochromatosis, which is why they wanted to give you that AFP level, is associated with perinatal liver injury as a result of maternally acquired transplacental antibodies that cause an alloimmune-mediated injury against the fetal or neonatal liver cells. It classically presents soon after birth with a presentation of liver failure and coagulopathy. So even if you don't know, didn't know the AFP levels, uh, the, A, the um, transaminases were normal and the PTT was normal. So it really pulls away from uh, mm. NH. It cla- at, uh, the alpha fetoprotein levels are often greater than 80,000. So you were right, uh, that, that upwards to 100,000. And the infant in the vignette does not have a clinical findings consistent with um, neonatal hemochromatosis. Now, I think uh, the other kind of close runner up was this progressive familial intrahepatic biliary hypoplasia, which is, which is super rare, but is a group of autosomal recessive disorders with impaired bile acid formation. Both types one and type two can present in the neonatal period, and both are notable for normal GGT levels, unlike the patient in this vignette. And even if you thought about that, you'd still have to rule out biliary atresia. And mm-hmm. the CMBIGG levels correspond with maternal antibodies transferred across the placenta to the fetus, and postnatal levels cannot be used to determine active infection in a neonate. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, all right. Let's, uh, let's go to question 25 then. Uh, Daphne, mm-hmm. 30-day-old male infant born at term gestational age is brought to the emergency room after his parents had observed a mass on his left thigh. His parents report that he has otherwise been well, although he had had slow weight gain. He's exclusively breastfeeding. And on examination, he appears jaundiced, and the mass looks like a hematoma. Mm. He also has scattered bruising on his extremities. Uh, The nurse shows you his stool, and it's pale-colored without much yellow coloring. And on further questioning, the parents, uh, the parents of the infant report that his tools have been pale colored for some time now. You do some labs, you find out that the total bilirubin is 10.5, the direct is 7.8, and uh, the ER physician speaks to the parents about the need for admission and initial management. Of the following, the most appropriate initial management of this infant includes choice A, IV prednisolone, choice B, IV vitamin K, choice C, oral ursodial, choice D, oral vitamin K, and choice D, phototherapy. Okay. I thought this was a hard question. 
<laughs> they are. Okay. So sometimes you're like, what is this pathology? And the question answers, the answer choices will give you the answer. One of them will give you the right answer of what is this pathology. So I was like, why? Okay. IV prednisolone. Okay. I'm thinking about this kid. The, the presentation was actually a hematoma. I'm guessing that that they want us to think about like uh, like a Casabac Merritt syndrome or something. Um, you might give steroids for that, but and the kid does have a hematoma. But there's something biliary liver going on, right, with the jaundice, yeah. the cholestasis, um, and this the pale colored stools. So I think that is unlikely you wouldn't find those things. IV vitamin K. Okay, sure. Uh, you might need vitamin K. Um, that's not the first thing I would think of necessarily in a kid with liver dysfunction, but the baby presented with a hematoma. So that's like a spontaneous bleed potentially or a minor injury in this one month old um, who's having a, a big hematoma. And or they don't mention, they don't mention at any point. or something trauma or whether the baby received uh, intramuscular vitamin, vitamin K injection K. at birth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You don't know. Um, oral ursodiol, I, I mean, I think that's on our list of things to do, but we're in the emergency department. So let's see if that's the next best step. Oral vitamin K, I guess, given the choices in this scenario, I'd want to give uh, IV vitamin K um, and phototherapy. Uh, no, this is really uh, direct hyperbilirubinemia. So I think you would give ursodiol, but I think the concern about this hematoma is that you're having some coagulopathy. So uh, I'm going to go with, I think I'm going to go with B, IV vitamin K. IV vitamin K. Very good. That is the correct answer. So um, so unfortunately, the baby in the vignette has findings that are consistent yet again. With biliary, with biliary atresia. atresia. <laughs> they love it. They love it. Yeah. You got to know biliary atresia. <laughs> um, so they, again, typical presentation, as we said, they present with cholestasis after two weeks of life and otherwise generally healthy infants. Now, you need to do a liver biopsy to actually make a definitive diagnosis. Um, it's characterized by inflammatory penductular biliary system obliteration that prevents secretion of bile acid into the gut. And so the infant can develop a deficiency in substances that require bile acid for absorption, such as lipid-soluble vitamins, which include vitamin K. Um, then on top of that, this infant is solely breastfed, which has low amounts of vitamin K. Infants with biliary atresia who are exclusively breastfeeding can have a more significant vitamin K deficiency. Um, bleeding as a result of vitamin K deficiency can have serious consequences such as intracranial bleeding and, and basically um, neonatal uh, or infantile strokes. Um, because the infant in this vignette has evidence of bleeding in his muscle, there's an urgent need for replenishment of vitamin K, and that should be the priority. Now, fortunately, aberrations in the coagulation pathway that result from vitamin K deficiency can be reversed within a few hours after parenteral administration uh, of vitamin K. Because the primary reason for vitamin K deficiency in this infant occurs because of poor enteral absorption from biliary atresia, oral administration is not a good option in this particular case for urgent replenishment. Um, looking at some of these other choices, uh, phototherapy obviously is not the correct choice because it converts unconjugated um, 
into uh, bilirubin into water soluble isomer that does not require liver conjugation. Phototherapy leads to a structural isomerization of indirect bili into lumirubin and a configurational isomerization decreasing indirect bilirubin concentration. So in this case, it would not be helpful. When it comes to prednisolone, it can be given to patients with biliary atresia to decrease inflammation. But before even considering treating this baby with prednisolone, um, you need to first have a confirmed diagnosis and probably still need to address the urgent need for um, for bleeding. Uh, ursodiol, also known as Actigol, is hydrophilic bile acid that improves biliary clearance by adding to the bile acid pool. Now, because ursodiol is slow-acting with effects that are observed only after chronic therapy, this agent would not be helpful in this in the infant in this vignette who requires urgent actions to prevent further bleeding. Um, and so it's interesting that although ursodiol and prednisolone could be used for the pathology described in the vignette, it uh, they are not the correct choices. They are used as adjuvant in the treatment of biliary atresia, and the therapy of choice for this baby would still remain a Kasai procedure. <laughs> so with that... I did not remember that about steroids in biliary atresia. Mm. It kind of sounds mm. kind of familiar now that you say it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, buddy. I'll see you tomorrow. Sounds good. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.